0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, my name is Nipan Patel, and I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley in the departments of molecular cell biology and integrative biology. So in part one of my talk, I introduced you to patterning along the interior-posterior axis of drosophila and the important role that Hox genes play in that process, and that these genes were evolutionarily well conserved. And in part two... I explained how shifts in those Hox gene expression, particularly in the gene UBX, seem to be responsible for evolutionary changes in the morphology of crustaceans. What I'm going to do in Part 3 is expand out and explore the function of the remaining Hox genes. So, what I talked about, again, the first time, was the particular Hox gene, UBX, and the potential role it had um, in both the development of the crustacean parhyala, and then evolutionary changes in the relative number of feeding versus locomotory appendages in multiple crustacean species. So, as I said, what I'm going to do is expand out to the other Hox genes because, of course, explaining the difference between maxillopads and and um, walking or swimming legs is great, but if you really look at crustaceans, we've got a lot of different appendages to explain. So, this is a micro-CT scan of an adult parhyala, and you can see that, in fact, you have this wonderful array of appendages. And if we even just um, restrict ourselves to the thorax and the abdomen, we have quite a number of morphologies to explain. So, for example, again, the first thoracic segment has that maxilliped that we've talked about. But then T2 and T3 actually are specialized in that they have claws on them. So they're called nathopods, and they use them for picking up food. And then T4 and T5 are the forward walking legs. So, these are the legs the animal uses when it wants to propel itself simply forward. But then 6, 7, and 8 have these enormous jumping legs. So, one of the things about amphipods is that um, they come up onto the beach, and then when they want to escape, they can launch themselves through the air. And it's using those three giant reverse-oriented legs that they can jump. And then, on the abdomen, they have two distinctly different types of appendages. So, the first three abdominal appendages are feathery appendages called pleopods, and they're used for swimming in the water, whereas the last three abdominal appendages are called uropods, and they're used for anchoring the animal into the substrate when it doesn't want to move. So, we've actually got a whole array of other appendage types that we need to explain, at least in the thorax and abdomen, and then even more distinct appendages in the head. But I'm going to restrict myself, for the most part, to the thorax and the abdomen today. So, in order to do... look at that, um, again, we want to explore their development. And one of the advantages to Parhyella is that all of those appendage morphologies are actually there at the end of embryogenesis at 10 days. So, as I explained, unlike Drosophila, Parhyella has direct development, and the hatchling that comes out at the end of embryogenesis actually looks like a small version of the adult. And you see that here in this light sheet movie. So, this is a hatchling. And you can see already all of those appendages, and they have Morphology is very similar to what they're going to have in the adult. So, what we did to try to look at this question is, now to expand out from um, just looking at UBX and actually go ahead and isolate the entire array of Hox genes that you find in Parhyala. So, they have the typical array of genes that you would expect for an arthropod. So, there's nine of them here that we've studied, um, and that's the entire set that they have. shown here are in C2 hybridization in red for these genes at about halfway through embryogenesis. And there's nothing particularly shocking about the pattern. It's the typical kind of Hox pattern for any arthropod, that they're expressed in these block-like domains, going anterior to posterior along the axis of the animal. And I won't show you the data, but it appears that they're organized in a complex, which is, again, very typical of of most arthropods. We can line up those expression patterns now to the morphology of all of these appendages. So, again, here is the schematic of the body plant, and down here, in a schematized way, are those domains of expression for all of those Hox genes. And what you can see, again, is there are some particularly striking correlations between the expression domains and the different type of limb morphologies. So, again, for example, UBX begins its expression at the transition between the maxillipeds the single maxilloped, and then the other types of thoracic limbs. But again, for the other Hox genes, you see interesting correspondences between those expression domains and the, and the morphology. But as I explained in, in Part 2 of the talk, one of the advantages to working on parhylo was really that we would be able to go beyond these kinds of correlations, and we'd be able to functionally test the role of these genes, and to see what they really do. We can make hypotheses based on their expression domains and what we know about the kinds of functions that they have in Drosophila. But um, the real test is to do those experiments in this organism. I explained uh, previously, too, when we worked with UBX, how we had done knockouts or knockdowns, we lowered expression, by doing RNAi. But more recently, in the past few years, we've been able to take advantage of CRISPR-Cas9 technology to actually delete the genes and make null mutations in the genes. So, we actually take a combined approach. We use RNAi to knock down genes, because sometimes that's actually quite informative, too, as well as CRISPR-Cas9 to totally knock out the genes. Um, So, just a very brief introduction then to CRISPR-Cas9. So, this is a guided gene editing system that works beautifully in many, many organisms. And the idea is that you have a guide RNA that brings this uh, enzyme Cas9 to the target locus. The Cas9 creates a double-stranded break. In our case, we're really just going ahead and taking advantage of that double-stranded break to create small indels. So, we usually put our target... uh, make our target sequence just past the start methionine. We get an indel that knocks the protein out of frame, and we get a complete lack of function. Um, and our controls are to make multiple guide RNAs and make sure we get the same phenotype when we target different locations. So, we've taken advantage of this approach to really rapidly go through and test function in, in Um Here's a proof-of-principle experiment just showing how well it works. So, in this case, you're looking at a parhyella embryo about halfway through development, the head's up here, more posterior regions here. The red staining is for the Antennapedia protein. Okay? But you notice in this animal that there's... Antennapedia staining, and it's actually in the normal pattern on this side of the animal. But the other side of the animal, that staining is completely lacking. And that's because we added the Cas9 plus the guide RNA um, to one of the two cells of the two-cell stage. And that cell that we knocked out both alleles of Antennapedia, that's this side of the embryo, and you can see that we've eliminated protein expression. And this side is normal. So, that's one of the nice things that we can also do in Parhyella is we can make half-mutant animals um, by injecting at the two-cell stage, or we can make fully mutant animals by injecting at the one-cell stage. I think the other reason that this the system works particularly well in Parhyella is the first three divisions take quite a number of hours. So, it takes eight hours to go through those first three divisions. So, there's plenty of time to hit your targets, when you're injecting the guide RNA and Cas9 in one-cell embryos. So, anyway, what have we found? So, we published uh, a little bit more than a year ago now uh, uh, many of our findings, and it's just sort of schematized here. So, in this diagram, again, we've drawn... Um, the wild-type limbs are shown to the outside of both sides of the, of the image, and then towards the middle are the expression domains for the Hox genes that we've um, knocked out so far. And then what you're seeing here... Um, In the inside legs on both sides are the uh, altered morphologies and the homeotic transformations we get. So, I don't want to try to go through all of these. We've done seven of the genes now. But what I want to focus on are the more posterior three genes, UBX, abdominal A, and abdominal B. So, this is equivalent to the bithorax complex that I went through in some detail before um, in Drosophila. And I want to focus on what they actually do in Parhyala, and hopefully convince you that we can understand what they do, but they actually work somewhat differently than they do in flies. And in fact, if we just used the information we had in flies, we would have made inaccurate predictions about what they would do in Parhyala. And furthermore, understanding how they work in Parhyala um, from these experiments, where we've actually directly manipulated them in parhyala, gives us actually a much better idea of the kinds of things that these genes can do during crustacean evolution. Okay, so like I said, I'll focus on these, these three mode posterior genes, UBX, abdominal A, and abdominal B. Okay, so remember back again to Drosophila, just to remind you that these are expressed starting in the posterior part of the thorax and then on through the rest of the abdomen. Um, and what's important here, of course, is their phenotype. So, again, the diagram that you've seen before, showing the domains of expression in the segments, and then the homeotic transformations that occur. And so, again, the simple rule that we had when we were thinking about these genes is that the segments that lose expression take on the identity of the segment just in front, and then that transformation moves posteriorly until it gets to the boundary of the next segment. So, that's, for example, in UVX, then, T3 and A1 are transformed to T2, abdominal A, then these segments A2 through A4 are transformed into A1, and so on, okay? This also illustrates another property of these genes, which is something called posterior prevalence, which is that the more posterior gene basically dominates. So, in these more posterior segments here, you're actually expressing UBX abdominal A and abdominal B, but it's really abdominal B that's setting the fate of these segments. Another way to illustrate this is that in flies we could actually inappropriately express abdominal B across the whole animal. And that would override, essentially, the function of all the other Hox genes, and the animal is completely transformed into a very posterior abdominal fate. Okay? And that... so that's a property of posterior prevalence. And it'll become clearer why I'm going through this when I try to describe to you what we see in parhyala. So, again, this is another way of schematizing the expression domains of all of the Hox genes relative to the body morphology and the different types of limbs. But I'm just going to focus on those more posterior three genes, and we'll start with, actually, with abdominal A. So, abdominal A, as shown here, is expressed in those three reverse legs, okay? So, T6, 7 and 8 And then it's expressed in the three pleopods, in A1, A2, A3, okay? So, now what we can do is we can knock it out and think about what we're going to see... So, one prediction that you would have from flies, right, is that the gene... the segments that lose expression would take on the identity of the segment in front. So, we would think that in this abdominal A domain that these legs... these, for example, the reverse jumping legs would take on the identity of the forward-walking legs. Okay. So, here's what... Ha- here, and let's look and see if that's the case. So, here's, again, a wild-type parhyala, a scanning EM. And we've colorized in false color those three big reverse-jumping legs, okay? So, what happens when we knock out abdominal A? So, sure enough, we turn those reverse legs into forward legs. So now this animal doesn't have those big reverse-jumping legs, and instead of having just two pairs of the forward-walking legs, it now has an additional three pairs of them, okay? So that's a striking homeotic transformation, and it's very much what we would predict from Drosophila, okay? But what happens to the more posterior part of the animal that in the abdomen where abdominal A is also expressed. And here we got a bit of a surprise. So again, the A1 through A3 have these feathery pleopods on them, okay, that you see here in the wild type animal. But when we knocked out abdominal A, what happened was is those were actually transformed into europods. And the europods, remember, are actually characteristic of much more posterior abdominal segments, the, the last three abdominal segments. So we got actually a reverse transformation for this part of the animal. So, for the more anterior domain in the thorax, the transformation was more anterior, the kind of expected result. But here in the abdomen, where abdominae is expressed, the transformation went in the reverse direction. So, a very different result than when you knock out abdominae and drosophila. So, we can, again, summarize here. That's the wild-type animal. This is the transformed animal. As we pointed out, when we saw this animal before, we've lost the reverse legs, and we've got more of these forward legs. But you can, again, actually appreciate here that you've lost the pleopods, and actually you have more uropods. So the transformation's actually gone in both directions. Okay. And again, here's another way of looking at it that I thought might be useful. So here we've colored in the claw-bearing legs in the dark blue, and then the forward legs in purple, and this is a wild-type animal here, and then the reverse legs in red, and then we've got our pleopods are in these green segments, and our uropods are in these yellow segments. So what's happened when we've knocked out abdominal A is a transformation in both directions. We've lost the red fates, so that's the reverse legs. We've lost the green fate, which is the swimming legs. and But we've replaced and transformed in both directions, so now we have more of the forward legs and we have more of the europods. Okay, So what we find then, or the hypothesis would be, is that, again, the observation, sorry, is that the transformations go in both directions, and so it looks like, instead, abdominal A works in a combinatorial way with uh, UBX and with abdominal B. So when you express UBX plus abdominal A, your fate is to be a reverse leg. And when you express um, abdominal A plus abdominal B, your fate is to be a pleopod. Okay? And that when you lose, then, abdominal A, then the reverse legs turn into forward legs, and... The, sorry, the reverse legs turn into forward legs, And then the pleopods turn into europods, as shown there. Okay. So now I'll move on to the next gene, okay, which is abdominal B. So, abdominal B is expressed in in these last six segments. So, it's expressed in the three pleopod-bearing segments in the A1 through A3. And then in the europod-bearing segments in the last three abdominal segments. So, what happens when we knock this gene out? So, again, the expectation would be that the segments that lose expression should be transformed to something more anterior. So remember that abdominal B expression starts in A1, in these pleopods. And so when we knock out... and in this case, I'm actually showing the results from RNAi, but you see the same thing by CRISPR, is that what happens is, is that those pleopods are transformed... Beautifully into the reverse jumping leg. So a very, very different morphology. And that happens for A1 through 3. Those three pleobod, pleopod bearing segments are transformed into segments that bear these reverse legs instead. Okay, here's a nice example where we've also seen the same result by CRISPR. This is, you're looking at a single segment and you're looking at the distinction between the left and the right side. Now, if I hadn't told you what segment this was, it'd actually be hard to distinguish because this is like a perfectly good reverse jumping leg. There's a perfectly good pleopod. But this is, there should be, the A1 segment. But what we've done is knocked out abdominal a only on this side. So you have a wild-type pleopod on this side. And then, instead of a pleopod, that's been transformed into this reverse jumping leg. But when we look closely at these transformations there was another surprise for us. So again, these are transformed into these reverse jumping legs, but the very most posterior segments were not transformed into the reverse jumping legs. They were actually transformed into the forward legs, right? So we got very surprisingly something that you really don't see in Drosophila, which is we got a non-linear transformation. So the very posterior part of the animal was transformed into something far more anterior. And so, then again, I've illustrated that here with this kind of diagram, that, again, here was our wild-type pattern. So, what's happened here is we've lost the green fate. We've lost those pleopods, right? But we didn't continue that transformation all the way down the animal. Instead, when we get to the last few segments, they are actually transformed to a fate far more anterior. And that's a very surprising result, not one that we'd predict from anything we knew in Drosophila or other organisms. So, how might that be coming about? So, if you think about it, Okay, here again, in this schematic, we look and we, we've got this knockout of abdominal B, right? And, but what we're, we're getting here is all the way in the posteriors, we're getting these forward legs. Well, if you think about it, the forward leg phenotype, that's really compatible with just expressing UBX, okay? And not expressing abdominal A or abdominal B. So, one hypothesis, then, is that what happens is, is that, in fact, abdominal A expression is not... you know, there's no effect on it by knocking out abdominal B. But you change the expression of UBX, right? So, the hypothesis would be that UBX now extends more posterior, right? And that means when it gets to these last few segments, you now have segments that express UBX without abdominal A, and of course you've knocked out abdominal B. So, we can test that hypothesis. So, we can take embryos and we can knock out abdominal B and ask what happens to UBX expression. And that's shown... so we can ask what... what... what happens, and that's shown here. So, here's a wild-type animal. And in red is... so the blue is just showing you the nuclei of the whole embryo. And in red is shown the expression pattern of UBX. And so, as is um, what you expect, right, from what we've characterized before, that UBX is expressed starting in T2, actually, and it goes all the way to the end of the thorax, and it's not expressed in the abdomen at this stage. But then when we look at our, our knockouts of abdominal B, what you see quite clearly is that UBX now extends down the whole length of the animal. So, that gives you this pattern, that you knock out abdominal B. Abdominal B normally acts as a repressor of UBX expression, now UBX extends all the way back in the embryo. So, now, these pleopods are transformed into the reverse legs because they have that combination of UBX plus abdominal A expression, typical of the normal reverse legs. But these last few segments now are only expressing UBX, and we've shown that abdominal A doesn't move when you knock out abdominal B. But these segments now are expressing UBX which means that they actually have the fade of forward legs, the typical fade of segments that only express UBX. So, again, this is a result that's very different than what you might have expected in Drosophila, but it's very insightful into the way that these genes function. And they really start to point to this fact that abdominal A has escaped from this rule of posterior prevalence, that instead of being overridden by abdominal B, abdominal A acts combinatorially with UBX and with abdominal B to give the fates of the reverse legs and the pleopods. Okay, so how else can we test this? So, another way we could test this is to keep... is to make double mutants. So, in this experiment, what we're going to do is we're going to knock out both abdominal A and abdominal B and ask what happens. Okay? So, again, in this... in this schematic, it's the same one where I knocked out abdominal B. But now, in addition, we're also going to knock out abdominal A. So, you can think about what would happen, right? So, now the expectation would be that UBX still extends back, but there's no abdominal A to interact with. So hopefully, then, your prediction would be, well, now, given these new rules, what we'd expect is that these forward legs would then extend all the way back. And that is exactly what you see. So here's a mutant animal, the wild type in the mutant. And if you look at closely at this animal, it's actually starting from T4. It has all forward walking legs all the way to the end of the animal, consistent with that, that model. Okay. So, again, and that's shown schematically here, that you knock out both of these genes, and now UBX extends all the way back. All these limbs are now only expressing UBX, and the characteristic morphology then from that, specified by that, is to just be the forward-walking legs. So, now the next experiment we could do, think about, is what happens if we knock out all three Hox genes? So, now we're going to knock out... or the the three posterior Hox genes. So, now we're going to knock out UBX, abdominal A, and abdominal B. Okay, what would you expect? So, remember uh, that when we knock out UBX, UBX was making that distinction between the maxilliped and the locomotory appendages. So, in fact, what we see is that you get this terrible-looking embryo, or it's very hard, in fact, initially to see what's happening, but if you dissect these limbs off, what you see is that all the way from T1 on back, they're all transformed into pet. So this should have been the A1 segment and the T8 segment, but the limbs on them are now maxillopeds. You can see the, the chewing parts right here. And so the whole animal from T1 back is all T1, is all maxillopeds. So, this all fits in very nicely then with our model of how these genes interact and work combinatorially to set up the pattern of the animal. So, hopefully, I've, I've given you a little bit of a picture of how these genes work in parhyala. But the the main message I want to you to take home is that, in fact, you wouldn't have predicted some of these interactions from drosophila. You have a slightly different set of interactions. Most importantly, like I said, is that abdominal A is escape from this system of posterior prevalence. So, it's not direct... its expression is not directly affected by knocking out either abdominal B or UBX. And that, more importantly, though, it acts combinatorially with those two genes to set these fates up. That, in some ways, makes some you know... It also is insightful in that you have to set up a lot more different segment identities, different distinct limbs in crustaceans than you do in flies. And if you just had posterior prevalence, that would limit the number of interactions you could actually have. By using a combinatorial system you can actually specify an increasing number of fades. Now, there are other ways you could have done it. You could have actually evolved additional Hox genes. That might have been one way to overcome a limit in the number of different types of appendages you could have. Or you could have done something that flies do, which is actually they also have some temporal control over when Hox genes are in different segments, and that can give rise to some diversity. But it seems that... Um, for whatever reason. um, In crustaceans, what you see, certainly in parhylate, is that what you've done is changed the rule to allow for combinatorial interactions. Okay. So, again, that's the the summary diagram. Um, What I want to... the only other thing I want to point out is that there's some really interesting things that go on in the head, where the genes, again, seem to be acting combinatorially. But what they do is they can also make kind of hybrid limbs, that part of the limb shows one identity, part shows another in the mutants. Um, I won't go into detail on that. But um, suffice to say that it's been really uh, amazing to be able to do the experiments in these other species and see that there are some really significant changes in the kind of rules that the Hox genes follow. Okay. So, um, I've shown you then... you know, hopefully I've given you a, a pretty good idea that now with our results, we can understand how you make each of these different types of limbs. And again, that's great from the perspective of trying to understand the development of this individual species. But how does that help us understand the evolution of other crustaceans? Well, it turns out that within this particular group of crustaceans that Porhyala belongs to, it's a group called the Malacostrican crustaceans. These are the ones that you eat. So these are things like lobsters and crabs and shrimps and so on. It turns out that one of the ways that they vary their body plan is to mix and match the relative numbers of appendages with these different morphologies. So, this is the, the pattern, again, that you have with parhyala that, that we've introduced before. But, for example, if you think about the number of maxillipeds, parhayala has 1, but in Malacostracans you can have 0 to 3. Okay, likewise with the nathopods, parhayala has 2, but throughout Malacostracans you can have 0 to 2. And so on. So you can have two-to-eight walking legs. You can have uh, zero to two of the... or zero to three of these reverse legs. And then you can have various numbers of pleopods and uropods. The thing is, is that this number always has to add up to 14. So you can mix and match appendages within this area, but you can't really change the number of segments that you have. Or you... at least in this group, you're not changing that number. So now, hopefully, you can realize, well, this gives you some predictions... About how you would generate these other body plans. That if we know the rules of how you set up these different limbs in Parhyala, we can now make predictions about how you would make different crustacean body plans that had different numbers of these different kinds of appendages. Okay, so, but we have to be careful with that because remember, in part one of the talk, I showed you the example where people thought, well, it would also be insightful, these four winged flies, and thinking about where how you made four-winged insects. And then I showed you that, subsequently, that that turned out not to be the case, that at least in this particular instance, the changes were not in the Hox gene expression boundaries, but were in downstream genes. So, what about in So, what kind of... can we see other examples now that you are changing Hox gene boundaries in order to make different body plans? So, I'll give you a couple examples. So, I showed you multiple times now that parhyala has the three pairs of the pleopods and the three pairs of the uropods. And really, it's expressing abdominal B that gives you uropods and the combination of abdominal A and abdominal B that give you um, the pleopods. And parhyala has this pattern of three uropods and three pleopods. But if we look at another crustacean here, this is a crayfish. So the crayfish has... The same number of abdominal segments; it has six abdominal segments, but now it has five pairs of these swimming pleopods, and it only has one pair of anchor appendages, only one uropod. So, not the three and three pattern of Parhyale, but a five and one pattern. Okay. So, if you think about it, right? So now the pattern is such that you have more pleopods, fewer uropods. So now that you know the rules of the genetic interactions or the molecular interactions that go to pattern this hopefully you can make a prediction about what happens in crayfish. And that prediction would be that what you do is you extend abdominal A so that it's expressed two more segments posteriorly, right? And then, given our information from Parhyala, the prediction would be that this would give you an animal that had five pairs of pleopods and only one pair of uropods. So the nice thing is now we can go and test this idea. So we can get a crayfish embryo and we can ask where abdominal A is expressed. And lo and behold, what you see is that, in fact, abdominal A is expressed all the way through A5. So it shifted two segments posterior relative to parhyella, and that fits perfectly with that kind of prediction. So in this case, then, this is another example where we can show that you've shifted the Hox gene expression, and that accounts for the altered morphology between species. Here's another example. So... Parhyala is called an amphipod crustacean, and it's called an amphipod because it has both the forward legs and the reverse legs. But the sister-grouped amphipods are the crustaceans called isopods. So probably the most familiar isopods... The isopods that are most familiar to you are things like pill bugs and stuff like that. This is an example of a of a giant deep water isopod, but they're called isopods because they don't have the two different types of thoracic legs. Rather, they have just the one type of leg, the forward facing legs. Okay. In addition, they also have the five pleopods and only one uropod. So now you can again make a prediction about what abdominal A expression would lo- look like in an isopod. Okay, So the idea would be that, well, since you only have one type of leg and it's the forward type, in fact, you would retract abdominal A expression out of the thorax. And that's, again, exactly what happened. So previously published research from other labs had shown that, in fact, abdominal A in isopods was not expressed in the thorax, but was actually restricted to the abdomen in, in fact, the five pleopod-bearing segments. So now I've given you multiple examples where, in fact, the predicted changes in Hox gene expression... Um, actually, do turn out to be real. That 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 is the way that crustaceans seem to be playing the game of altering their body plan. So I've given you these examples with abdominal A, and then much earlier I'd given you the examples of UBX controlling the position of the maxillopeds. So we have now multiple examples where crustaceans are actually, or evolution is is altering the body plan of crustaceans by actually shifting around Hox gene boundaries. And that's very different than the picture we have from insects, where there can be some late modifications to Hox gene expression. In fact, there are some, some quite striking ones. But, in fact, the early domains of Hox gene expression in insects is very well conserved. But in crustaceans, there seem to be major alterations that go on in the expression pattern of Hox genes very early in development, and those appear, actually, to then be responsible for the differences in morphology that you see between crustacean species. Okay? So, what are some other things that we can look at? So, what I'm showing you here, again, are the legs. And the, and, and, the, and the outline of the legs is in blue, but in red are the muscles. And one of the things I want to highlight is that the muscles between a jumping leg and a swimming leg are very different. So, that's the, the T8, reverse jumping leg, the A1, wild-type um, pleopod. But when we transform the pleopod into this jumping leg, not only are we transforming that external morphology, but lo lo and behold, we're actually also transforming the musculature. So then this presents an interesting problem, because we don't expect that in evolution there were these giant jumps in morphology. We expect that in evolution that the changes in expression were gradual, and that there was a slow change in the morphology of these appendages. Something like that T2 appendage I showed you in the mice, it's somewhat in between the maxilliped and the swimming leg. But one of the problems in in that kind of scenario is that you have to, of course, always keep the limb functional, right? It has to be doing something useful. You can't suddenly evolve a functionless limb as in some sort of intermediate. But complicating that, then, is understanding, like, how you would also keep the muscle in, in some sort of usable fashion as you were transitioning between different types of limbs. So, one of the issues, then, is how do you actually regulate UBX? Do you need to regulate UBX differently between the muscle and the the ectoderm, between the the mesoderm that makes the muscle and the ectoderm that's making the external morphology? So, one of the things that we're actively doing now is actually manipulating Hox gene expression differentially between the ectoderm and the mesoderm. And again, we can do that in parhyala because these macromeres that you're seeing here make the ectoderm, but these two micromeres, ML and MR, they actually are making the mesoderm. So, what we've started to do is to actually genome edit separately in the ectoderm from mesoderm to ask how you actually regulate the genes um, separately in the two tissues, or do you need to, or does one actually follow the other? So, those are ongoing experiments. Another really interesting question is how does the brain... how do you keep the nervous system wired up the entire time? That's another interesting question that, that we're continuing to pursue. So, hopefully now I've shown you that if we follow this Swiss Army knife analogy, that we can now use the mutagenesis of Hox genes to really understand how it is that you get all the different types of appendages that you see on a crustacean. And in our case, Parhyala is the crustacean that we've been analyzing. And now we have a very good description about how you specify each different type of limb. And that's great from a developmental perspective of understanding exactly how you do it in this one species. But then at the same time, The beauty from an evolutionary viewpoint is that now when we understand how you specify each type of limb, we can also now start to make hypotheses about how you make different crustacean body plants, or how evolution has created those other crustacean body plants. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.